Welcome to Preaching at Trinity. Preaching at Trinity is a podcast for the sermons preached at Trinity Baptist Church of Westfield, Indiana. We hope that you enjoy the messages over these next few weeks as Pastor Minton preaches a series of sermons out of the book of Titus. Here's our senior pastor at Trinity Baptist Church, Dr. Daniel Minton. All right, take your Bibles, go to Titus 3. I'm amazed at how God orchestrates things. Pastors, we try to work, we work diligently at trying to create a service, a church service. Um, and this is not to manipulate things, but to, to lead us from our busy life and our busy schedule and our busy morning to a, a time where by the time we're opening up God's word, we're focused on him and him alone. And I'm amazed today how God has orchestrated things that we didn't plan. Roger basically preached my sermon already. And uh, you'll absolutely understand why I say that as we get into, very quickly into the verses that we're going to read. God is so good to us. And so we're going to close out this study of Titus by really focusing on the church. This is what Paul's doing as he's writing to Titus and he's telling him to set things in order in the churches of Crete. And as he closes out the book here, the second half of chapter 3, we see his focus on the, the good works that are going on in the church and how the good works of the church, the people of the church performing the acts of Christ is a display that Christ or an evidence that Christ transforms lives. The people of Crete were morally decrepit. They were horrible. They were against God, and yet God was changing them. He had changed them. He was transforming their lives. And so their lives were then produced, producing good works that evidenced the transformation of Christ. And so we see that Paul's really clear in the first half of chapter 3 that it's not by works of righteousness that we've done. It's not work, good works or God seeing worthiness in us that he saves us, but only because of his grace and his goodness does he provide salvation. And we're, we're reminded that we live in this sin-stained world that's full of people who are looking out for themselves. And yet we are to stand out in society. We're to stand out as people who've been transformed by the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We can and, and should be different than the world around us because of God's power. And so the big challenge for the first half of chapter 3 is not how to live godly in an ungodly world, but why. Why should we live godly in an ungodly world? To live with distinction because of the amazing grace of Christ. And we, don't, we do not obey God so that we receive some sort of a, a blessing or a favor from him. We're to live righteously because our Savior is worthy of the honor of our obedience. And so I ended with a really hard statement, a hard-hitting statement, but an honest statement and question. Do you, do I, do we treat God like a slot machine? A slot machine of blessing, and if I... If I work hard enough 
and I put in enough obedience that one day I'll hit the jackpot of God's blessing and he'll, he'll give me all kinds of favor and goodness because I eventually have earned it. Or do we serve at the exclusive honor of Jesus Christ because he alone deserves it? And our reverential service can really be evaluated by how we focus on pleasing him. And so let's read verse 8 because it's kind of a transitionary statement as really chapter 3 could just be one long sermon. He says in verse 8, this is a faithful saying and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have, been, who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid Foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter here. Send Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who, who love us in the faith. Grace be to you. Amen. And so the short book comes to a conclusion. I want you to see first, though, as he's talking about good works, what can distract us from good works. And he actually goes to time-wasting discussion, which I find unusual. Uh, verse 9, he, he lists, really, it's three categories of things that we can talk about that actually distract us from doing the work of a believer. And so he gives us these three things that really waste our time, and he starts with foolish disputes. These are questions that really accomplish nothing foolish questions are questions that cannot be answered this time or this side of heaven these, these types of questions don't increase our faith but rather cause us to doubt our faith or question our faith or really distract us from serving the lord in fact you'll know this greek word the greek word is moron we use it loosely in english these would be moronic questions. Can I give you one that I've heard before that's been asked to me before that doesn't have an answer because it's a foolish, moronic question? I've been asked before, can God make a rock so big that he couldn't lift it? That is a faithless question. And, it fit, and really, I think it's a question that's meant to, to trap people into giving a negative, faithless answer. It's faithless in that it doesn't understand God. It's trying to put the constraints of human limitation on an all-powerful God. For if you answer yes, God can create this massive rock that's too big to lift, then you limit the power of God that God is not powerful enough to, to lift it. And if you say the opposite, that God can't create a rock that's too big, well, then you create a God that is limited in his creative ability. And you've just, with either answer, you've made your own God who is limited to your understanding and my understanding. That's a foolish, it's a moronic question. Let's call it what it is in the Greek. It's moronic. 
It's a dumb question that actually causes people to doubt and, and weaken faith. For God cannot be limited to a box or a series of questions that we can comprehend and understand. A man is not religious just because he talks about religious things. That's also in the context here of these foolish questions. If we discuss religious things, that does not make someone religious. Doesn't make them, if a man talks about morals, does that make him moral? No, not at all. If a man talks or a person talks about faith, does that mean they have faith? No. And so what you have here in Crete are people who love to discuss religion, but people who don't put it into practice. The kind of person who loves to argue, debate, and ramble philosophically, but there's no conclusion, there's no end. Romans 1 talks about these people. He says, professing themselves to be wise, they're actually fools. Following Christ is a faith that works. And just because a person might even be discussing true theological truths, it does not mean that they believe them. And frankly, if a person cannot obey the simple theological truths of the Bible, but they can discuss the deep the theological things of the Bible, it doesn't mean they have faith. Because faith works. In fact, that's uh, Paul's entire, entire point to Titus here as he's, as he's concluding this chapter. Faith works. And so just because a person talks the right the right things or speaks about the right things does not mean that they actually have faith. If we cannot obey the simple things, then why discuss the complex? And so he, he tells us that foolish disputes, moronic questions and arguments, even about true spiritual things, cannot replace obedience to Christ. It's a distraction from true faith. The next one Roger already covered for me, genealogies. Genealogies is a validation of faith through heritage or tradition. And we understand the Jewish, uh, Jewish believers and Jewish people loved to discuss genealogy because they could carry back their genealogy hundreds or even thousands of years, thus validating, I'm from David, or I'm from Moses, or I'm from this very religious person, or this a very spiritual family. And they would associate their religi religiosity with their religion or heritage of religion. And, and so he, he, Paul debunks that as being any form of righteousness. It's empty. Trying to validate our message by our relationship to past righteous people. A claim of righteousness through your parents or your family practices. And so Roger very aptly described that he was unworthy of Christ's redemption because he is a sinner, regardless of what his family relations are. By the way, we, we still do this in America, although we, don't, we certainly don't trace our family heritage back very far. And I'll be proof of that, that I don't even know the names of my grandparents. They're just grandma and grandpa is what they were. And so I never met my grandfathers. I don't even know my grandfather's first names. That's how far back my heritage goes. And it's kind of sad that that's where our society is heading. 
But at least I don't claim, I can't claim any kind of spiritual uh, knowledge through my family. We do it a different way, though. In fact, we do it the same way that the Corinthians tried to do it. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. You know, what did Paul say at the conclusion of that section? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius. That's what Paul says in verse 12. So here they are, the Corinthian church, saying, we're religious, I'm spiritual because I sat under the tutelage of so-and-so. No, 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 I'm more spiritual than you because I sat under the, the instruction of somebody even better than the guy that you sat under, and we do the same thing in America. I was in so-and-so's church, or I, I was trained under so-and-so, or I followed so-and-so. What's it matter? They're just a bunch of so-and-sos. It doesn't matter. They have no spiritual benefit to them. They're just sinners like the rest of us who needed redemption. And so we can't validate our faith through spiritual genealogies. An attempt to be holy by association. Who you know or who you sat under. And hopefully we learn from our parents and hopefully we learn from godly examples. But they should never be the source of our relationship with God. And so let me ask a very important question, especially of every young person in our church. Every child, teenager, young adult in our church has sat or is sitting under, hopefully, godly parents. Can I ask you, are you faithfully following Christ because he is your God, not the God of your parents? And so just like Roger had to ask that question of himself at Youthquake, Never heard of that before. Just like he had to ask that question of himself, you need to ask it of yourself. Are you following Christ because he is your God or because he's the God of your parents? Ask yourself, do I love Christ because of what he has done for me, not because of what he's done for my parents? And really, every one of us should be asking the same question. Is my spiritual confidence in other people or is my spiritual confidence in God and God alone? And so he's given us a couple distracting things that keep us from good works. We can argue and talk about spiritual things and then never even do spiritual things. And, our, and, and we're going to see here in a moment that makes us a heretic. We can also be so wrapped up in who we're following or who are being taught by that we don't actually make decisions for ourselves spiritually. The third thing we can do is be contentious and, and disputing or striving over the law. These would be self-centered rivalries over the truth. There are certain topics that just are more contentious than others. And we are not to purposely bring up topics that cause intense debate and anger that are divisive or, or produce stru, uh, strife in our life. Or stroof either. Don't produce stroof. <laughs> well, tongue-tied. These are, these are spiritual arguments claiming spiritual superiority. And, and this is not that uncommon. Now listen, sometimes these things are even correct and right and good. I feel like I have 
solid ground to stand on biblically. I can go to the scripture if I'm in, an, in a conversation with a Presbyterian to say that salvation is by grace alone and that baptism happens after we're saved by immersion. I think I have really solid spiritual ground to go on that. That does not make me superior, though, to a Presbyterian who might teach that, that baptizing an infant into the church has nothing to do with salvation, some might say, but is, is a, an act of dedication to the church. I think they have flimsy ground that they're standing on, really weak ground, and a poor understanding of, of, of baptism. That doesn't make me superior. And I dare say there may be some things that the Presbyterian gets right that I get wrong. Now, if I knew what they were, I'd change them. So don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to live in sin. But, but as a sinner who's saved by the grace of God, I don't have a moral high ground to stand on. Let my truth be found in Christ and Christ alone. It doesn't bring me moral superiority or spiritual superiority that makes me more worthy than them of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And yet we can have strife and striving over the law, over this interpretation of law and this interpretation. Now, don't get me wrong. God's truth is always God's truth. But there are times where my interpretation might be to my own self-glory. And those types of strivings are always wrong. In fact, the striving over the law here could very well be the Judaizers, the false teachers that are taking the law and the Old Testament teachings of the law and elevating them to being equal with faith in Christ. Meaning the Judaizers followed after Paul. Paul would preach, by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, otherwise we'll boast. And then the Judaizers would show up a month or two later and they would say, yes, Christ is absolutely necessary to salvation, but if you are a true follower of Christ, you're going to get circumcised too. You know, you're going to do these other things that Christ has told us in Scripture, and, and you're going to do those things unless they're adding works to salvation. They're confusing the church. They're striving over the law. And Paul says that is empty, useless. Arguments about religious laws and rules that make us superior to others. We're to remember that the heart is more important than the law. The law points to the fact that our heart has issue with Christ. And to flip the importance of these two over is to turn the Bible against itself. The purpose of this verse, these verses here in verse 9 and into, jumping into verse 10, the purpose is to, to highlight the foolishness of man's speech when it's not backed up by faith that works. So to speak about spiritual things but lack the obedience of our heart is a fruitless ambition. It's a form of self-love, of moral or spiritual superiority that does not please Christ. And so vain speech listed here actually prevents us from producing good works. Oh, we have a good talk. We talk all the time about spiritual things, but we never seem to put it into practice. Christ says that type of workless faith is unprofitable. And so how does what you talk about spiritually 
mirror a life of obedience. It is cheap and easy to, to talk correctly, to speak correctly, to talk about the things of God. It is infinitely more difficult to back up our life with obedience in action. And so what spiritual things are people tempted to discuss, but they do it in, in a form of self-love? In fact, notice what he equates it with then in verse 10. He says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. And so the other distraction to good works, there's divisive people, a heretic. A heretic literally here means someone who turns someone aside from the truth. In fact, it's associated, we see the word uh, uh, twisted later on here, or warped, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, literally means to put a twist in things. They've been turned away from the truth, and they have taken or chosen for themselves something else. So they've taken, and they've chosen something that is not spiritual, claiming it to be spiritual. It's self-condemned meaning this, this person picks or chooses the parts of God that they want to follow, and they discard other parts that are hard or too difficult or don't line up with their life. That's what it means to twist, to take by one's own choosing. Now, I'm, you need to recognize where this heretic is. Now, I, I, Paul, I think, is wisely speaking in generalities here. There, there are books in the Bible where he names the heretic. And then there's places where he doesn't name the heretic. Now, there might be a reason for that. There might be so many heretics in the Church of Creek that he can't name them. So he's just going to give a, a general statement about all the heretics. But notice where the heretic is. He's in the church. And by the way, there's always... And always will be heretics in the church. Christ made that really clear. He said, there's some of you, and you're going to say to me one day, Lord, Lord, I did all these miracles in your name. And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. All the gospels talk about false teachers, wolves among sheep. All the epistles have... Uh, not all of them, but most of the epistles have recommendations on how to deal with false teachers in the church. There's always going to be false believers in the church. And so that's where this false teacher is, or this false speaker, this heretic. This person is twisted and, and has believed things about, about God that are not true. They're picking and choosing the parts of God that they like, and they're leaving the parts of God that they don't want. Notice... He says in verse 10, reject a divisive man or a heretic, that's the word heretic, after the first and second admonition. And what do we have? We have the description of a heretic in verse 9. Foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. And so this heretic is in the church. Someone who's turned aside from the truth or literally twisted the truth, warped it. It's a form of idolatry to build a God who fits one's own choosing. And how are they to be handled? 
Verse 10 and verse 11, verse 10 very clearly says reject. Reject a heretic. But how they're to be rejected matters. Now, when we hear the word reject, we think, kick them out. (laughs) Boot them, right? This is what we do in the church. We kick them out. We ostracize them. And yet, that's not what he says here. He says, after the first and second admonition. And so how are they, how is a heretic to be handled? Somebody who's twisted the truth, somebody who's off in their teaching, doesn't mean just excommunicate them right away. They are to be admonished. In fact, the word admonished here, we would say rebuked. An admonishment is a mild rebuke or a warning to call their attention to the issue. By the way, this would line up perfectly with Matthew chapter 18. If this helps you think of it in terms of baseball, three strikes, you're out. Okay, that's what Matthew 18 is. If a a brother is overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such one in the spirit of meekness. Go to them, a mild rebuke. One time, go to them. And if they won't hear you, take with you two or three witnesses, then in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word might be established. But if they refuse to hear them, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to hear the church, then remove them. Remove them because they're a heretic, a false teacher, a false speaker. But it takes at first a mild rebuke, a warning. They're to be given a chance to consider their ways, to consider their sin, to consider how they've believed a lie about God. They're not to be humiliated. They're not to be lamb blasted. They're not to be ridiculed, but corrected. In fact, if you follow Matthew 18, they're to be corrected quietly. You take that person, you go to that person, you talk to them alone. Nobody else needs to know. Do not tell me. By the way, just as your pastor, can I tell you? Don't tell me. If you haven't gone to them first and said, listen, there's a problem in your life. You're behaving like a heretic. There's this thing in your life that you believe in. It's a twist of the truth. And you need to repent of that. If you haven't done that, don't come talk to me yet because I'm not to be involved yet. You're to go to them alone. Tell them their fault and restore them. It is not my job to confront every sin of this church. It is your job. It's your job to confront other sinners. And then, if they won't hear you, take with you two or three more. Godly people who love and care for their soul that you might admonish them and turn them from their error back to Christ. That's the pattern that Christ lays out over and over again in Scripture. Now, I came across an incredible passage about heretics. Twice now in the last month I've come across this passage and I don't know how I haven't read it this clearly before. Would you turn with me though in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 5? I was reading this in my morning devotions again this week. I was overwhelmed by the truth how, how clearly Christ is telling the church to interact with someone who's, who's in a sin. And this goes against the teaching of conservative evangelicalism. 
Did you, did you hear what I just said? We're going to read a passage of scripture that conservative evangelicalism has gotten terribly wrong, and I've heard dozens of sermons contrary to the scripture. Now that I've piqued your interest, let's read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with, <clears throat> with sexually immoral people, yet... I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or, an, or, or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner not even to eat with such a person now let me tell you the sermons i've heard over and over again i've heard many sermons that you should not keep company with sinners that you your friends in this world should not be unsaved immoral people now, there's a truth to not participating in the sins of this world, but yet here we have in 1 Corinthians 9, Christ commanding us to keep company with sinners. And I point you to Christ who was accused over and over again of sitting down at meal with tax collectors and publicans and harlotans and drunkards, yet never participating in their sin with them. Christ commands as believers that we we sit at meal with unsaved people. That we have friends who are wicked, horrible sinners, but we never participate in their sin. In fact, what does he condemn? He condemns any of that being a part of the church. Paul's really clear. I don't know how I missed this for years. I don't know how conservative evangelicalism missed this for years. The condemnation is so clear. What are we told never to do? Never allow someone who is like that into the church. Verse 11, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who... And then he lists those very sins. There should be no believer in this church who can be described as sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. That's a heretic. Somebody who has twisted the truth, formed their own God that allows their sin, and they're perpetuating it, and living it in the church. And if you know of someone who fits any of those descriptions, it is your job as a member of the church, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to go to them between you and them alone, and say what you're doing or what you're saying does not line up with Scripture. You've twisted it, and you're not obeying what God says. At the same time, you were to go out into this world and find those people who are sexually immoral. Find those people who are covetous, extortioners, idolaters, and you're to befriend them so that you can demonstrate to them the love of Jesus Christ in word and in deed. We're to shun heretics and find sinners who need the gospel. 
Listen, there have always been heretics in the church. There's always been false speakers, and there will be. People who twist the truth and manipulate it and warp it. And there's, boy, there's actually a lot of it going on even today. And we'll, we'll talk more about that tonight in the sermon. And Pastor Perry's going to talk about it with the young people tonight. But may it never be a part of the church. In fact, what should be a part of the church, if you're still with me in Titus or go back to Titus, we'll see how Paul finishes out the book. And he's going to talk about the commitment of faithful workers. In fact, he's going to name names, good names. And this is the need here of gospel partners, people who want to follow the, the, uh, the obedience of Christ, not just in word, but in deed as well. So he names four people. He names Artemis, Tychicus, Zenos, and Apollos. And we're going to talk about each one of them very briefly. In fact, the first is Artemis. This is only mentioned in Scripture. We don't know very much about him, but here we have a very clear statement that he serves under Paul. He's a, a gospel partner with Paul. And so we see verse 12, when, when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis. And so Paul's going to send either Artemis or Tychicus to replace Titus. We don't know, does Titus need a reprieve? We don't know if he does or not. We don't know if there's a bigger task for Titus to move on to the next place. But for whatever reason, Paul, as an apostle of God, is moving people around so that they can minister fully. And so here he's going to move possibly Artemis. That shows us that Paul trusts him deeply. Or Tychicus, who's a, a faithful and dedicated worker. By the way, we know a little bit more about Tychicus. He delivered the epistle of Ephesians to the Ephesian church. So Paul writes it and Tychicus delivers it, which we would assume means reads it and dictates or explains part of it to the church. He also did that with Colossians and Philemon. He served for a while in the church of Ephesus. We're told that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. And Paul calls him a fellow slave in Colossians 4, 7. Then we come to Zenos. This is his only mention in Scripture, and he's a lawyer, an expert in the law. That means he's a layman in the church, and yet he's here serving effectively, faithfully. Notice what Paul wants concerning Zenos and Apollos. He's decided to winter in Nicopolis, and he asks in verse 13, send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos, not one or the other, both of them on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing and let our people also learn to maintain good works. And so he sends Zenos, or he wants Zenos sent, and he wants Apollos sent, and he wants them sent fully supported. He's telling them, Nothing should be lacking. They should have everything that they need for the journey that they're, that they're starting on. And then Apollos. We, we know a lot about Apollos. We learn most of it from Acts chapter 18. He's from the city of Alexandria in Egypt. He then goes up to, uh, to Ephesus, and he's teaching and preaching in the church of Ephesus. And I love this story. He's preaching and teaching, but the Bible says he's preaching and teaching incomplete. He's teaching that... Uh, the message of John the Baptist, which what's the message of John the Baptist? Repent, for the kingdom of, of God is at hand. Or in other words, repent, the Messiah is coming. There, there's just one problem with that. The Messiah came. So he's preaching faith in the Messiah, 
But he doesn't know yet that the Messiah came and was crucified and rose again. And so what happens? Priscilla and Aquila teach him. And by the way, there's a name order there. It seems that Priscilla is doing the teaching and teaches him the full extent of, of the gospel of grace. And so he leaves there and he goes to Achaia. And when he gets to Achaia, he strengthens the church. And then after Achaia, he goes on to Corinth. And at that time, Paul had been in Corinth. And he goes to Ephesus and he hears about the work of Apollos. And he hears about his faithfulness. And for years, he, uh, Apollos remains in Corinth, strengthening the church. So that by the time that Paul writes 1 Corinthians, the church is, is stronger but they're also saying, I'm of, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos. And Paul has to say, I don't want to be associated with any of you people. Because you're focused on man, not the Lord. Now, why do I tell you all that? Apollos was a faithful, committed evangelist for the Lord. That was his gifting, the giving of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, even though Paul has said, hey, you're arguing about who you're associated with, you should be associated with Christ. And then in, in chapter 3, verse 6, he says this, I planted and Apollos watered, but what? God gave the increase. Paul is not jealous at all of Apollos and his work. Apollos is an incredible speaker. He's turning whole cities to Christ. And Paul's not jealous at all. In fact, here in Titus, he says, I want to partner with Apollos. There's no indication in Scripture. I, I get it. This is an argument from silence, which is not strong. But there's no, no time in Scripture where we're told that Apollos and Paul worked together on a team, that they, they met face to face. And yet here in Titus, Paul is saying, I want to work with Apollos. I want to team up with this, this man who loves the Lord and is faithful to teaching the gospel. Well, he concludes the letter in verse 14 and 15. I'm, yeah. He says in 14, And let our people also learn to maintain good works. Let our people learn. And so we have the purpose of good works is to produce fruit. To produce fruit for Christ. To meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. Or let's put it in the positive, that they will be fruitful. And so that's the purpose of the church in Crete. And that's the purpose of our church. To be fruitful for Jesus Christ. Paul's heart is that the church produce works that point to the transformative power of Jesus Christ. Good works that validate the message. They're necessary. In fact, in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me. And so I ask you, do you love Jesus Christ? If you do, keep his commandments. Our motive should be our love of God. The need for the church is to learn good works, to partner 
in love and grace that others may see Christ in us. Chapter 3 may be short, but it, it packs a hard hit. We, we're not here to play church. If we love the Lord our God with all our hearts and with all our minds, then we will not play church. God deserves everything we say and everything we do to bring him glory. And it's so easy to fall into a, a habit of twisting our faith into things that we want to believe, things that are easy for us to believe, things that appease our own self-worth, when God deserves our best. He deserves our obedience from a heart of thanks. And so what specific passions do you have that warp your obedience to Christ, that twist your faith and allow you to do the things that you want to do regardless of your stance for Christ? What ideas and thoughts steal away your attention from obedience to Christ? And how can you change your conversation so that you admonish one another for the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ alone? I remind you how we started first, or Titus in chapter 1. Titus is told to set things in order. Get things visible, clear, standing for Christ in a way that honors and glorifies Him alone. How are you doing that in your life? Let's pray. We hope that today's message has challenged you spiritually and has been an encouragement to you in your walk with the Lord. For more information about Trinity Baptist Church, or if you have questions about your relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us on our website at tbcwestfield.com or on Facebook or Instagram at TBC Westfield. Thank you so much for listening today. Join us again next time for more Preaching at Trinity.